The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Genesis 6, verse 5, here we go. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We're going to draw three life lessons uh, from this biblical account of Noah. There's probably hundreds more. Uh, We're going to draw one from before, during, and after the flood. Uh, But before we venture into those lessons, let's just stop a minute to consider what we just read because it's important. Uh, Some could ask this question from those few verses we just read. They could say, how could God do this? Right? How could he send a flood that would kill every person on earth except Noah and his family? Um, And I believe the answer to that is in the text. I think that's a reasonable question if the motive for the question is correct. Most of the time when that question is asked, the motive is not correct. Most of the time it's somebody standing in judgment of the God who made them, which is never a good idea. When I pause like that, it's a good spot to amen. See, I'm going to keep giving you guys some opportunities. I'm going to show you where they're at, right? We do not judge God, right? And why is that? Because he's God, right? Amen. That's exactly right. Okay, so um, most of the time when people ask that question, it isn't uh, out of a good motive. I think it's a good question for us to be able to understand a biblical answer to because, because people do ask it. And some people ask it out of a genuine curiosity because they are trying to understand who is God and how does this fit into the, to the total picture of how God is described. Because God is described as the very source of love. And yet we see here something that could be understood to be unloving, right? Global flood? Yeah, that could seem to be a disparity. Okay, so let's wade in here and see if it is. Uh, I'm going to read verse 5 to you again. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How could God do this? Okay, here's the answer. Verse 5 tells us, God knows the heart. And that means he knew the evil and violence that man had uh, begun to practice continually was only going to go on if he did not intervene. And I believe that this is the same reason there is a hell and many people will go there. And that's another question people ask and another thing that people don't like about what this Bible has to say about God. There are some that will say, you know, I I like parts about Jesus hugging kids and petting lambs and I like when he has piety statements that I can, you know, kind of take out of context and put on my fridge, it might make me feel better about myself, but when he he starts saying stuff about hell and um, giving my money, ugh, I don't like that stuff, so I'm going to skip all that and, and just stick to the parts I like. Well, that doesn't work, right? Because then you've become the editor of God's Word, which is not a position I would like. And I don't think any humble person would. Uh, you'd be pretty prideful to think that you can come in and kind of, you know, do the Thomas Jefferson and cut out the parts you don't like. Not a smart move. Um, but God knows the heart, and I believe that's the same reason um, 
the earth was flooded, and the same reason there, there is a hell. That's a reality. God knowing our hearts even better than we do ourselves is clear throughout the scriptures. Let me give you one more example. I'm going to read Luke 16, 15 to you. When speaking to the Pharisees, Jesus said, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. Okay? Um, let, me, let me just say this first. God does know our hearts, but when people stand insolently or pridefully and judge God because of the flood and because there is a hell, it is because they do not understand the heart of God. Let me read verse 6 to you. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. People mistakenly think that God is a sadistic dictator that gets joy out of punishing the disobedient. This is some people's misunderstanding of God's heart and character. Please make no mistake. There was not joy in the heart of Father God as the earth was being flooded in judgment. It was not a joyous day for him. There was no joy in the heart of Father God because he had to flood the earth. There wasn't. I want you to try to imagine with me, and, and, and I know when I say that, Maybe you don't like to imagine because that's what kids do, but I want you to try to just connect emotionally with this as much as you can. Try to imagine the pain that parents suffer when they have to make the incomprehensibly difficult decision to disconnect their child from life support. I'm going to let that pause for a second. Think about you being in that spot. Your child, whom you love, maybe you don't have children yet and you're not sure you can conjure up that emotional connection. Surely there's a child somewhere you have affection for. Think about you being weighed down with the decision and the pressure of deciding whether or not that plug is pulled and, child, and that child is, is um, separated from that life support. They know, that parent knows that the tragic accident or disease has killed their beloved child and that they are only breathing because a machine is doing it for them, but that does not make their only possible choice any easier, does it? It doesn't. It is still devastating for them. And this, I believe, is as close as we can come to understanding the grief in the heart of God when he flooded the earth or when any person rejects him and chooses hell instead. We can't even, not even come close to conjuring the emotional pain that Father God went through in having to carry out those acts, in having to flood the earth. You think it bothers you? You have no idea. Because God's capacity to feel emotion is infinitely larger than yours. So whatever capacity you would have to feel the pain of being stuck in that terrible situation, of having to decide whether or not your child kept breathing on that machine, the pain that would put you through, and, and the, just how torn you would be in your heart, it can't come close to touching the pain God has to go through in administering justice. We don't get it. Now, you could still stand indignant and you could say, yeah, that, that's all well and good. That's, that's, you've used some philosophical musing there to try to shift the buck, but here's the real reality. Well, didn't he know this would happen? Isn't God's foreknowledge of the events, doesn't that make him culpable? Is he not then guilty for causing it if he knew? 
You could say that. And, and you would be right. Yes, he did. He did know. Before he ever made Adam and Eve, he knew they would rebel. God is completely and totally outside of time. He's eternal, and his foreknowledge is complete. Yes. And he knew later that he would have to flood the earth because the wickedness of the heart of man would become so complete. And the only way you can think the fact that God knew these things beforehand means he is not good or loving is to falsely believe it bothers you more than it crushes him. If you believe that, you are wrong. I love you, but you're wrong. And that kind of thinking is going to lead you into a place of pride and, and, and a place where you feel justified in standing in judgment of God's actions, and that is not where we belong, dear ones. We belong in submission to his will and in all of his goodness. You are not more bothered by the implications of a worldwide flood than God is. I promise you that. Your heart is no more grieved over one person rejecting Jesus and going to hell than God's is. Stop standing there thinking you care more about that person than God does. You don't even have the capacity to do so. Okay, I love you, but you've got to think right about this. Amen. Uh, the fact that God knew he would have to endure the heart-wrenching tragedy of people rebelling against him, and yet still he made us, is proof of his great love. It's not evidence against it. Thank you, Jesus. Let's keep reading. We're going to pick up in verse 13. It says, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with, with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And... Of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Life lesson one of the three that we're going to pull out of this is that sometimes God will ask you to do something that does not make sense. Some of you are nodding your head because you've been in that spot. <coughs> so here's what we got. God commands Noah to build a boat that was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high, with an internal space of about 1.5 million cubic feet, and he Tells him to build a boat this size, uh, miles away from any major body of water. And the text suggests that this took about 100 years. And what is Noah's response to this out-of-the-ordinary instruction from the Lord? Let me read you verse 22 again. 
Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. This is just one of many biblical examples of God asking his people to do something that doesn't seem to make any logical sense. And I know that some of you have had similar experiences. Uh, There have been many times that God has told Natalie and I to do something to bless someone else or to uh, contribute to building his kingdom that made absolutely no sense financially. Uh, if we would have sit down with a financial advisor and said, okay, well, here's, you know, here's what we got. Here's what's coming in. Here's what's going out. Here's what's in the account. And here's what God's asking us to do, Mr. Financial Advisor. What do you think? <laughs> I'm pretty sure we would have got some of the same puzzled looks that Noah got as people walked by his gigantic boat in the middle of dry land. You know, kind of that like, you know, high pit dog hears a high-pitched whistle, kind of cock the head. Mm. Buddy, I'm not sure if you just don't understand math or what's going on here, but this is not a good idea. Yes, thank you. Um, That's not the only example, though. Noah is not the only example. Um, Jesus comes along. He tells Peter and Andrew to leave their livelihood to come and follow him. Uh, He does the same with James and John. says they got up, set the nets down that they were mending, left the father in the boat. The way that would have worked, they should have took over dad's business, continued to be fishermen. Jesus simply comes and says stuff like, you guys come with me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. No further instruction, no further elaboration, not like, here's the plan, guys, what do you think? You, come on, come follow me. And what did they do? They got up, and they went, they obeyed. That would have been an out-of-the-ordinary instruction. Just ditch the whole plan that has been you know, working for generations and, and come do something different, because I'm asking you to. And I'm not going to give you a whole lot of details. I just want you to trust me. (laughs) Isn't God awesome? He is. Because when you obey him, he doesn't fail you. Because of those guys' obedience, the early church had the leaders necessary to spread the gospel message to the nations. I'm thankful for that. There are those that would say to sacrifice financially or abandon the plan that you had to obey Jesus is foolish. I would propose the exact opposite. I would say to disobey the God who made you and loves you and knows you and knows more than you ever could possibly hope to is the very definition of foolishness. Now, some of you are convicted right this second because you know that God has told you to do something in the past, but you talked yourself out of it because it seemed crazy or too extreme. And I want to, if you're in that boat, I want to lovingly, and I've been in that boat. It's not a fun one. It's not like Noah's Ark where we're petting animals and riding around on the storm. It's a real sad boat, uh, and it's a bummer. So I don't think Noah's Ark was that fun either. I just needed a comparison, and that's what came first, so... Let you into my brain. Um, If you're convicted because you know God told you to do something and you talked yourself out of it, I want to just submit two things to you. First of all, I'm really glad that Jesus didn't consider submitting himself to torture and the excruciating murder that is crucifixion for crimes that you and I committed. I'm really glad he didn't consider all that too extreme. Because if he would have, we'd be 
in a whole lot of trouble. He went to the extreme of extremes so that you could have hope, so that you'd have something to put faith in, so that you would have the hope of reconciliation and redemption. I'm thankful for that. The second thing is that I want to submit to you is that you're going to remain frustrated about not getting further instruction from the Lord for your life until you obey the things he's already told you to do. I speak to a lot of people that are frustrated because they feel like they're floating prayers up to God, not getting an answer. And of course, this is not 100% of the time. Sometimes God is silent and and doesn't answer you just because he wants to see if you're going to pursue him. You can like that, not like it, be mad about it, glad about it, sad about it. It doesn't really matter. Sometimes he's going to do that because it's for your good because you need to learn how to pursue God and care more about his answer than all this other peripheral stuff, okay? But sometimes the reason he doesn't answer you is because why is he going to, you know, proverbially waste breath when you didn't do the last thing he told you to do? So some of you need to think back. You need to sit down, get quiet in prayer and some of you have maybe even forgotten it's been so long since you disobeyed the Lord. But some of you need to go back and, and do the last thing he told you to do before he's going to give you any further instruction. Now, here's the encouragement in that. Some of you automatically are discouraged by that because you, realize, you know how long ago it was you disobeyed the Lord. But here's what I want to say to you. If there's one thing that I have observed to be true about the God that we serve, he is a master of making up for lost time. He has this ability to just, like, take years of our stupidity and, and, and fix it and get us to where we should have been so much quicker than it seems like we should. And I think that's just a part of his grace and mercy and, and power in our lives. And he gets glory for that. And I'm thankful for it. It's been true in my life. I know it's been true in many of yours. Okay, so um, let's read, uh, let's get over here to chapter 7 and we're going to start in verse 1. Keep moving along here. Let's go. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. Also the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Pause. Some of you right there are going to be tempted to jump off um, mentally because you're like, okay, he's six hundred years old. Um, The Bible doesn't explain why there are men that lived a whole lot longer towards the beginning of the book. Here's one theory. It satisfies me. If the effects of the curse started at Adam and Eve, if we see um, sickness, degeneration, even some of you will understand this terminology, the, the genetic mutations that lead to the deficiencies we see in our health now, if that started at Adam and Eve and that's progressive through time, you would, you would see guys probably stronger, smarter, healthier, longer, the closer they were to that event. And that's why I think, you know, in the last hundred or so years, we've had some medical advances that I think have, at least in our minds, put at bay a little bit that, that degenerative process of the curse. But ultimately, overall, I think we still see that our bodies are breaking down. Uh, and they weren't originally going to do that, but that's part of the effects of sin. So um, I'll tell you what, modern medicine aside, when I wake up in the morning, I realize that the curse is real because I'm stiff and it hurts. <laughs> So, whoopee. All right. Off we go. We're going to pick up in verse 7. 
Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, first off, those of you that know me knew that I was going to have to nerd out on you um, with some apologetics since we're in the Noah story. Like I, I realize this is one of those stories along with um, Jonah and the whale and a few others that people who are antagonistic to God and his word like to point at and say, well, because of science, we know that couldn't have happened. Well, okay, here's the problem with that. Um, all of a sudden, you put, you put science, or, and whatever your definition of that is, um, above the eternal wisdom of God, and I just, you know, call me archaic or whatever you want. Um, I think that's foolish. So, and what we also see is the farther along we go here, and the more honest <laughs> some in the scientific community are, uh, the more we see that science points to the fact that um, more of what the Bible says is plausible than maybe we previously thought. So uh, here's something recent. I don't have time to go through all of the reasons logically and scientifically why I think a global flood and Noah's Ark um, is a reasonable thing to believe in. Uh, but here's one more recent discovery that lends itself uh, to the credibility, okay? Um, many have questioned the account of a worldwide flood because of the amount of water it would take to cover the earth. Okay, that's fair. It's a good question. Where did all that water go? The Bible says it receded, right? Okay. Um, that's kind of vague, is it not? Yes. Guys, I know I'm nerding out, but just come with me. for Just, just let me have this. I need two minutes, and then we'll be back, all right? Just... Let me have some science nerd time with you. Come on. It's give and take, right? Here we go. Okay. So there was an article published recently um, in the journal Science, and it reveals strong evidence that provides an answer to this question, okay? About 400 miles down, um, there is a, a part of the Earth's uh, crust. It, it's, it's kind of a transition point, and it's made up primarily of a mineral called ringwoodite, okay? And uh, that is, has, it has like a crystalline structure, and so it, it acts like a sponge. And so what scientists have figured out is that um, in, in that layer, now this is not, it's not conclusive yet as far as the amounts of water because they have only been able to take a couple samples, but there's reason to believe that all of this ringwoodite is saturated to the same level as the, the samples that they've already pulled. And if that's true, that layer would contain three times more water than is currently in the world's oceans. Okay? Now, I'm going to give you guys a chance to just take a wild guess here. If we brought three times more water than is in the Earth's oceans right now up to the surface, how much land do you think would be left? That's right, zero. You guys are science club blue ribbon Great job. So that's exactly right. None, okay? And here, I want to I draw your attention back to something, okay? Let me read you verse 11 again. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were also open, okay? I'm not saying that this is conclusive and, you know, incontrovertible evidence of exactly how God flooded the earth and then that water receded. What I'm saying is, 
Those that stand in a place of pride and say, because of science, I know that's not possible, are fools. Because the more we pay attention, the more we understand about the complexity of biology. You know, when, this is not in my notes, I don't have time for it, Just, I need one more minute. Listen, when, Dar- <laughs> when Darwin was, was, was developing the, the origin of species and his theory of, of evolution, do, do, we did not have electron microscopes. Do you understand, when he looked at its cell, what he saw was a little blob on a, on a piece of glass. And so it was, it, was, it was not hard for him to think that, well, man, look how, look how simple that is. And, and maybe because of how simple that is, well, if it, it mutated a certain way and kept on going, you just give it billions and billions of years, we end up with all the complexity of life we have on the planet. Here's, here's, here's what man didn't know. Like, if, if you get a better microscope and you look down in there, even at the most basic building blocks of biology, the cell, it's incredibly complex. And inside that cell, you have... Inside of it, we can't even explain how you've got DNA with this pre-programmed with information that is of such a sequence and of such complexity that, I mean, we didn't figure that out until 95, man. And what I'm saying is, we're, we still can't explain with any level of intelligence, where did the information in the cell come from? And yet we have people that want to stand and, and tell you, you're a fool for believing that God is the one that put that information there. They still can't give you a good answer for it, but you're a fool for having faith. What I'm saying is, um, to have faith in a theory that can't give you any solid explanation for how the whole thing got going, that takes more faith in believing that God Almighty created all of what we see here, including life, which seems to so clearly have the fingerprints of an intelligent designer. I am done. Okay, here we go. Uh, Life lesson number two, drawing out of this text. So now we're looking at, we looked at a life lesson from before the flood. Now we're looking at one during the flood. Obeying God will require patience. Okay? Noah exhibits an incredible amount of patience during the flood and throughout his, this cruise that God sends him on, right? Uh, First of all, he was patient with people. If you've, ever managed, if you've ever managed people to accomplish a task, you know that it can be frustrating, okay? If you have ever tried to manage family members to accomplish a task, you know it can be really frustrating, right? Just try to get them all to the table at the holiday meal, right? It's, it's unbelievable. Um, and it's just different dynamics that happen when it's family. You can't just say, I'm the manager, do what I said. You've got to think about people's feelings, you know. It's a lot like the church family. It's a lot of fun. Um, it, took around, it took around 100 years to build the ark. Um, now, we don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't say if he did. He could have hired other laborers to be a part of that process. We don't really know. We do know, however, that his family was involved in that 100-year building project to build the ark. Okay? Can you imagine being on a 100-year building project with your family? Love my family. I promise I really do. But that could get difficult. Um, then, then he was on the ark with his family, door closed, small space. Um, he was on the ark with his family, including the in-laws, uh, for roughly a year total. So that's 12 months. Um, some of you were at holiday gatherings last week and you were ready to smack somebody within 12 minutes. (laughs) Tell the truth. That's right. Okay. So 
we're talking 12 months on the boat with the family. We got to try to, you know, keep all the animals calmed down, make sure we're not dying. There's stuff to do, manage the people. We're crunched in here. I know it's a big boat, but once you get all the animals on there and, and stuff to eat, like there's not going to be a lot of room to move around. So, and I can't imagine the smell was super awesome. Bible doesn't say, but I think that's something I can reach and infer without, you know, being dishonorable to the text. Um, so he was patient with people, clearly. He had to be in order to obey God. Uh, he was also patient with God. Uh, Noah had to trust God day after day for a year as he floated around waiting for the waters to recede. Can you put yourself there emotionally for a second? I mean, we, <laughs> when, you know, they're a bit slower than they should be with our nuggets at Wendy's in the drive-thru, we're, you know, getting all steamed up. I'm talking a year in a boat with a bunch of animals waiting for that water to recede. And every time you look outside, what's it look like? For a year, water, as far as I can see. God said this would go down, but this has been a lot of days. Come on. God's promises never, ever fail, and they are never, ever late. We are just often under the assumption that God must submit to our timetable. That is not true. While patient, waiting patiently while trusting God is not easy, but it is essential to keep our hearts in the correct posture towards him. So being patient while we trust God, that's essential to keep our hearts in a correct posture towards him. If you have become impatient while waiting for God to do something that he has clearly promised in his word, I would call you to repent and to be thankful that you have a reason for hope at all. If you've been waiting for God to do something he has not clearly promised in his word, you may want to assess why you are asking. Because James 4.3 says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. I think oftentimes we think that um, God is a pinata, faith is a stick, and if I whack it hard enough, the candy should fall. It's not how it works. You see, God is bigger, and God is smarter. And just like everything, if, if I gave Max something to eat, every time he went to the fridge and tugged on the handle, I would be on Maury Povich right now trying to explain why my kids was 300 pounds. You understand what I'm saying? And God's a better dad than me, right? So he's not going to let you be a pudgy toddler on Maury Povich, right? So he's not going to give you everything you think you want. Some things he's going to tell you no, and that's the most loving answer possible. It's very loving for me not to let Max just smash all day, because that's what the dude would do. And, and, and the situation's even more crucial. Would you pray for us, man? We got stuff on the counter left over from Christmas. There's cookies and stuff everywhere. Dude's trying to climb stuff. And I don't know. I don't know what to do. I'm a little, I'm, I'm, you know, I need prayer. If I should just spank him more, get taller cabinets, I don't know, leash him. Uh, but it's, it's, you know... I'm having an opportunity to be patient with a human. That's my hungry son. Um, amen. So let's turn, to, uh, let's turn to Genesis 9, verse 20. We're going to see our third life lesson there. Genesis 9, verse 20. Life lesson number three is uh, that you are not defined by your past. Okay? Life lesson two was... Um, it requires patience to obey God. Life lesson one was that sometimes God's going to ask you to do things that doesn't make sense. Okay? Life lesson three here is that you have, 
You are not defined by your past. I'm going to read you Genesis 9, starting in verse 20, and we're going to go to 29, okay? Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Okay? Now, some like to get on Noah uh, for being this supposed man of God, but he gets off the ark, he plants some grapes, and he seems like he gets drunk as soon as possible, right? So he's like supposed to, you know, Peter said he's a preacher of righteousness, what's... What's the deal here? It's like he could not wait to get some grapes in the ground um, and, and get blasted, right? So here's the thing, though. We like to point at that, you know, and, and of course, humans looking at the faults of others always makes us feel better uh, because we're sinners. But here's the thing. I'm not, I don't want to excuse Noah's behavior. I'm not trying to do that. But I think we should consider the fact that this guy just witnessed the extinction of the rest of humanity, Okay? And likely heard their screams as the floodwaters overtook them. I think it's possible that he may have been suffering from something like post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and often, you know, as, as oftentimes people do, he tried to forget by numbing himself with alcohol. He probably wasn't the first. First mentioned in the Bible, but I, I doubt he was the first. Um, and he definitely wasn't the last to realize that searching for peace from a substance only makes things worse. Some of you are thinking, though, well, yeah, that was probably hard for him. I'm sure it was. Witnessing the extinction of the rest of humanity, that's, that would be difficult. That might have been hard for him, but he didn't have to get drunk and naked as soon as he got off the ark. And I would just say, some of you Pharisees need to chill out because... All you, the only reason you needed at some point was Friday to get drunk and naked, right? <laughs> Tell the truth. You didn't have to witness the extinction of nothing. It could have been Friday. <laughs> and that was all we needed. Yes? Yes. Okay. Don't raise your hands. <laughs> There's people sitting around you, right? He who's without sin cast the first stone, all right? Keep those in your pockets, you Pharisees. All right. Um, but what I, do, <laughs> what I do want you to see... Um, is that even though Noah's story here in Genesis, uh, it seems to end with him sinning and failing, uh, God does not allow him to be defined eternally by his failure. Uh, I want to read you a scripture that shows the legacy of Noah through God's eyes, uh, and to show you that God was not fixated on Noah's failure, but let him be remembered for his faith instead. Let me just read you this verse. It's Hebrews eleven seven. If you're familiar with Hebrews 11, it's oftentimes referred to as the, um, the hall of faith. So it goes through and it's, it's talking about a bunch of people and how they live by faith. Um, and it's commending them for that. So Hebrews eleven seven talks about Noah. It says this, By faith, Noah, being warned about the things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation 
of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. The grace we receive through faith changes who we are. Did you hear that? That's important. It changes who you are. We are no longer dead men or slaves to sin. We are sons and daughters of God. And if you've heard that so many times that it hits your ears and just is kind of like a common thing, I would, I would encourage you to shake yourself. Because what the Bible says clearly is, what you were before Christ was dead in sins. What you were before Christ was a slave to sin. And to be liberated from that by the grace that comes through faith in Christ and be allowed to be referred to as a son or a daughter of God, this should not ever be able to reach the ears of one who's experienced that transition and just be a common thing. That was a good spot to amen and you missed it. Woo, come on. That's the truth right there. And that's something to be excited about forever. We will spend much of our time in eternity rejoicing over that right there. So if you're bored with it already, I'm real scared for you. The grace we receive through faith changes who we are. If you have put faith in the finished work of Christ, if you have trusted in the good news of his beautiful gospel, then you do not need to go into 2015 carrying all the weight of your failures from 2014. Do you see the implications of the gospel? This is not just this theological and theoretical stuff that we say in here because we're gathered together and we call it church. This stuff changes everything. You don't have to go into 2015 thinking about all the ways you screwed up in 2014 and 13 and 12, and 11, right? You don't have to. The call of grace, the offer of King Jesus that you come and you exchange him, every place you fell short, all of your failings, all of your sin, you can come and you can bring that and you can put it at his feet and he can take that and he'll trade you. He'll give you in return all that nasty stuff. What he's got to give you back is peace and joy and assurance, reconciliation to him and the Father. I don't know where else you can go and get a trade like that. I don't think anywhere. Praise God. And so you have the opportunity to repent today. You can give those burdens to the only one who is mighty enough to carry them and live in the joyous reality of redemption. You have that option. Hallelujah. I'm thankful in the providence of God we find ourselves today talking about Noah and seeing that even though the end of his story looks like a, a big <laughs> fail, got drunk, got naked, right? That's not the way God let him be remembered. That's clearly not the way that God ID'd him. He didn't see Noah's identity as drunk, naked, nasty old Noah. What, what did he let him be recorded as in Hebrews eleven seven? Noah, the man of faith, who partook in the righteousness that comes by it. Praise God that I will not be labeled one day when everyone gets a chance to see by all the stuff that I should be. All my drunkenness and nakedness or whatever that looks like for you. But praise God, I'll be identified the same way that Noah has been. By the faith that saved me. By the faith that brought me into the merciful grace of Christ who loves me. Praise God, that's my identity today. Praise God, I don't, I don't got to wait till 2015 to take it. Right now, today, I'm a son of God instead of a slave to sin. Woo! If you ain't excited about that, you ain't going to get excited about nothing. Woo, I'm a Christian today, 
And that's how I'm known today and for eternity because of Christ. Not anything I could do wasn't because I got better, wasn't because I cleaned myself up, wasn't because I'm perfect today, because let me tell you something, I'm not. But because he is. And I get to partake in that. I get his righteousness for all of my sin. I get his joy for all of my depression. I get his peace for all of my anxiety. And this is the God we serve. And people act like it's hard. People act like it's some kind of weight. People think what this is is some list of religious laws to follow. Man, what are you talking about? This is an invitation to the greatest joy that can be found anywhere. This is an invitation to new life. This is an invitation to be something you can't be any other way. And that's free. Come be free. If you're not free today, get free. Trust him. Please trust in Christ. Go from your identity being complete. Go from who you are being defined by what you do to go, to go transition over to who you are being defined by what he did. What do you, which one do you want? Do I need to bring a mirror around just to remind you for a second what the first option looks like? If your whole identity was, if you were locked into what you've done, that's what's going to be how you're known. Mm, that's a bad deal. If all we were doing was looking at my today, <laughs> it'd be a bad deal. But that's not who I am. I can repent for that, and I take on the identity of the one who loves me, the one who saved me, the one who went before me, the one who broke the back of sin so that I don't have to be enslaved to it. Not defined by what I do, defined by what he did. That's who I am. And that's who you are. Some of you aren't living like that. Some of you don't believe that. Some of you, that's not gotten on down into the core of, of who you are. Some of you, you've learned enough Christianese to be able to sit in here and not stand out. But some of you, the gospel of grace has not really gone down and grasped your heart. And I, and, and, and I want to offer to you the opportunity to completely and totally embrace this truth and let it really transform you. You'll know if it has. You'll know if it has. You won't be able to stay away from this world. You won't be able to stay away from God's people. You won't be able to stay away from opportunities to share this gospel. Because every, when he comes and changes a person, he doesn't just do half. <laughs> he does it all. And he starts from all the way down on the inside. He changes that heart that no one else can change. Come on, Love City. That's awesome. I'm thankful for that today. Praise God for the gospel. Thank God that Noah got to be called a a, a, a preacher of righteousness by Peter instead of just a drunkard and a nudist, I guess. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> that would have been a bad deal if, if, if he went through all he went through. And then all that this was about is us. We, we're just like, we just, yeah, we're just defined by what we do like everybody else. It would be a bad deal, but it's not. Amen. We're offered something much greater. Don't you see the gospel? Don't you see the gospel here in Noah's story? The justice and the right judgment of sin. God's judgment is righteous. Some of you struggle with that. That's the truth. You got to get right with that right there. When God judges, it's right. He is good, totally and completely, without question, and is loving. Amen. We see the justice and the right judgment of sin, but Genesis 6 8 says that Noah, get this, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was not perfect. 
Some people don't get that. They see, this, they see that he walked upright and blameless. What this is not teaching is that Noah did what Jesus did. No, 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 no. He found favor. <laughs> the same kind of grace and mercy we found. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was not perfect just as we are not, but God extended grace to him. And he builds an ark for the salvation of him and his family. He builds an ark for the salvation of him and his family, and he builds it exactly the way God tells him to, and that's with one door. Come on, come on, Love City. How many, how many ways were there? How many ways were there onto that ark of salvation? This is easy. It's not a trick question. How many ways were there onto that ark of salvation? Does that sound familiar? The very same way there is one way to reconcile relationship with the Father. It's not through sinning less, and it's not through doing more. It's by trusting he who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is a better ark. He's an eternal ark. And once we are found within the shelter of his grace, we don't ever have to leave. Woo, there was one door in that ark, and there's one way to salvation. Jesus is that door. It's a, it's a type and a shadow we see already pointing forward. This is how, this is how God saves. He, by mercy and favor, nobody deserves salvation. Noah didn't. <laughs> but he gave him a way that him and his family would be saved. It's by going through that one door. Why wouldn't there 50 doors on the ark? Would it have mattered? I mean, no, but God was doing something. He was showing us something all the way back then. Jesus is a better ark. This is the gospel. We see the gospel so plainly and so beautifully in this. That every, here it is. The gospel means good news. And, and, and it doesn't make much sense if we don't first faithfully say the bad news. And that's where many people fall short. And so what I have to say, some of you, you might be visiting here today. Please, my point here is not to offend you. My point here is to lovingly tell you the truth. You've Got to understand that this right here is true. Every single one of us, and that includes you, has sinned. For some of you, that seems like a foregone conclusion, but it's not so much as you would think. Because every single one of us has sinned, none of us is perfect. Can we all come to the table and say that, yes, that's true? <laughs> You're not going to find it here. Not perfect, right? That's a problem because our sin has separated us from God. That's what the Bible teaches, that God is perfect, totally and completely perfect, so perfect that it is not a stretch for him to be compared to, and actually, we are told in eternity, he is a very source of light, and light and darkness cannot be mixed together. This is not God just sadistically wanting to punish us. The reality is he cannot be in fellowship with sin. And so our sin creates a serious problem, which is separation from God the Father who is the very source of all life. That's an issue. We're all in it. We're all, this is not an ark of salvation. This is a bad boat that we're all in. Nobody gets out because every single one of us is imperfect. See, a lot of people think that that is. They think their ark of salvation is our group imperfection. You'll hear people say, well, nobody's perfect. And they think that that, that all of a sudden means, well, pff, then... Surely God can't hold us all accountable. Yes, he can and will. There is a way to escape the floodwaters of judgment that come, right? And it's through Jesus. Us being 
all imperfect together, is that's, God's going to say, oh, well, we'll just give them all a pass. It's not the way it works because God is loving and just. And he cannot defy any part of his character. He's perfect. Our sins separate us from God, but Jesus. <laughs> this is where the good news starts. We're all in serious trouble. Here's the answer. Jesus, our ark of salvation, he came and he lived the perfect life that we couldn't and then he died the death that we should have in our place for our sins. This is the gospel message. He paid the price. He took the damage from the storm of God's justice, dying on the cross in our place. But because of his perfection, death couldn't hold him. And he rose victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And here is the invitation. See, people, it's so amazing to me how many people can not only live in America, but could, can be exposed to church and supposed Bible teaching for very long periods of time and never hear this simple truth. What will determine whether or not you are inside the ark of salvation on the day of judgment or not is simply faith in the finished work of Christ. Can you believe by faith that what Jesus did is enough to fix the sin problem in your life? That is it. It's not going to be, did you get to a certain point in your life, clean up enough that now, well, maybe I can do less sins for this amount of years and then it, you know, I'll do some good deeds and hopefully that outweighs the bad deeds. Do you understand how many people believe that? If you believe that here today, I love you, and I don't mean to sound condescending, but that has nothing to do with what the Bible presents for how somebody is going to either be in eternity with God or not. The dividing line, the thing that makes the difference is faith in the finished work of Christ. Can you trust in this gospel message? It's going to take faith because, listen, the Bible doesn't say everything we wish it would say. You're not going to get answers to every single one of your questions, but where those, where those trails come to an end, what, that, what you're left with there is faith. God has told us enough about who he is. God has told us enough about ourselves. God has told us enough about his plan of redemption that we do have enough to place faith in that and be rescued from sin and death and hell. Will you do that today? Will you trust in Christ I'm inviting you to that. I'm asking you to put your faith in him because placing your faith anywhere else is going to lead to shipwreck and ruin. It's going to lead to misery. And you can believe this or not, but because of how much Christ has loved me, I love you. I don't have to know you to love you. I don't have to know you to care for your soul. And I'm asking you today, trust in Jesus. Please. Because his gospel is true. The bad news is true, but the good news, it's true. And that truth is going to set you free. The truth is, honestly, it's what matters most. I'm just asking, can you believe that today? Will you trust Jesus by faith? We invite you to do that. In light of all this, may we be a people who obey God, no matter the price, just as Jesus did. May we be a people who are patient with each other for the glory of God, and patient with God for our good. May we be a people who find our identity in our Savior King and not in the sin that he saved us from. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for this story. I thank you, Lord, that it's not just some myth or something poetic that you put in there for our entertainment, but Lord, what we are supposed to see here 
is your mercy and your grace in action. We're supposed to see here, Lord, that you are a God of mercy and you are a God of total unmerited favor and that, that Noah found that favor in your eyes and we're supposed to, we're supposed to see that you, you make a way for those who will trust you by faith to be saved and to, to avoid the wrath and the judgment that, that comes because of your justice. I thank you, Lord, that you instructed Noah to make that ark. And I thank you, Lord, that he didn't hear those measurements and, and, and back out. I, I thank you, Lord, that he didn't decide it was, it was too intense or that was going to be too crazy. You're spending 100 years and all that effort was, it, it, that was too much effort to obey you. That he was going to do something else. I'm thankful that he trusted you, that he obeyed you, that he built that ark with one door. And we get to see that type and shadow of Christ, that, that one way to salvation. And, and I thank you that, I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came. And I thank you that you didn't see it as too extreme or too difficult to go to the cross and to, and to be tortured and to be humiliated and to be, to be nailed to that cross, to be crucified in our place for our sins. You didn't see it as too extreme to shed your blood so that we may have life. I thank you. That death couldn't hold you. And I thank you that you rose from the grave. I thank you that you've made a way that by faith we can share in your righteousness. That by faith we can be made clean. That by faith we no longer need to be dead men and slaves. But we can be sons and daughters. Lord, we are so thankful for these things. God, help us to live in light of them. We love you. We give you praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.